Well, we are moving through what are called some of the red letters in the book of Revelation. Red letters are where Jesus is speaking. And you normally would think, I mean, that's just the way the publishers do in your Bible. He didn't speak in red letters, but they, they put them in there just for ease for you to see it. But you figure, well, after the, you know, after the four gospels, Jesus is raised and we're probably done. But you get to the book of Revelation and you see Jesus speaking to these seven churches. This is how it opens. Basically says, on the Lord's Day, on Sunday, John was in the spirit, meaning I had a vision and I heard a loud voice. And this voice is Jesus speaking to him. And he said, I want you to write down what you see and send it to the seven churches. And then he lists seven churches in the Roman province of Asia. It's modern day Turkey, really close to where John was imprisoned on a little island, a penal colony off the coast of Turkey. And so we see Jesus dictating letters to these churches. One of the things that we've spoken about is the chronology. So if you think about it, Jesus, I'm going to use rough numbers here. So Jesus is preaching and teaching in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, let's say from 27 AD to 30 AD. It's right around there. Call it, let's say 30 AD, and then Jesus is crucified and raised from the dead. Then the apostle Paul, again, there are letters in the New Testament being written by the apostles and the disciples, but... Paul is writing letters in this part of the world in, say, let's call it about 55. So 25 years later, maybe almost a generation later, a lot of these churches are, are begun because of Paul's evangelism. Then the book of Revelation, written approximately 95 AD, and so another 40 years later, Jesus is talking to these churches, and he's probably talking to the second generation of Christians in these churches. So that's what's happening in chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation. Now, I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but something exciting happened to me this week. Have you ever come across a map that was just perfect for what you wanted, and it just makes your heart beat a little faster? Me too, and I found one this week that I really, really like. I know this is kind of busy. I don't know the provenance of this map, but I want to say thank you to whoever created it. Okay, this is a little snapshot of Turkey, modern-day Turkey. And it is the cities that were in that area about 50 A.D. So in other words, when the Apostle Paul is walking through this area, he is coming across all of these towns. I know we're talking about seven churches in seven cities, but I wanted you to see how populated this area was. So in about 53 uh, AD, the apostle Paul, I'm gonna highlight Ephesus. He sails into Ephesus and he stays there, oh, between two and three years. And he converts, you know, a lot of people accept the gospel and they begin forming these house churches and they're worshiping God, but they're on fire to do what Jesus said, go into all the nations, uh, teaching them to obey everything I commanded you, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so all these young people, a lot of them young people, a lot of them older, went out into all of these towns. And over that period of time, this area became a really strong area of the Roman Empire 400 years later because of the churches that are started. Paul didn't start them all. Just people who were on fire went out and said, I'm going to move to that city and start a church. We're going to look at some of these cities, and let me just show them to you in order. We talked about Ephesus in our first lesson. Then we talked about Smyrna in our second lesson, and we also talked about Pergamon, or Pergamum. One's a Greek word, one's a uh, Latin. And then today, and, and this I told you, this was like a, a route, if you will. It's almost a circular route. We're going to talk, he's going to write a letter to Thyatira and another letter to Sardis. Those are the two that we'll do in this lesson. But just to finish this out, and you will see this map again. I, re <laughs> I really like this map a lot. And so then the last two are Philadelphia, which we'll do in our next lesson, and Laodicea. 
And so those are the seven churches. You can see they kind of form a bit of a ring. So I don't want you to think there weren't other towns and there weren't other churches at that time. And this is a great map that kind of shows you how populated it was. And Paul stayed two or three years because of the opportunity for evangelism. And he, you know, these young people would come to Christ and then off they'd go. And this whole area became very solidly Christian uh, for, like I say, at least the next 100 years. Here's a map that's just a little bit easier to see. And here are our cities again, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum. We're going to go to Thyatira and Philadelphia in this lesson. So I want to take these two in order, and he's going to write the next letter to the church in the town of Thyatira. So here's, uh, here's what he has to say. This is Jesus to the angel of the church in Thyatira. These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching, she misleads or deceives, literally, it's deceives my servants or my slaves into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. We'll come back and talk about this in a minute. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you. Only hold fast on what you have till I come. And to him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. Just as I have received authority from my father, I'm skipping the quote, I will also give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So we're going to talk about this just a little bit, but first I want to introduce, you actually see Thyatira show up in one other place in the New Testament, and I want to take you there. So this is Jesus speaking to the church in Thyatira in about 95 AD. I want to take you back to about 53 AD when Paul is going through this area. He's going to go back to the book of Acts. The book of Acts goes from the resurrection of Jesus Christ for a couple of decades, actually probably 30 years, 35 years, of what's happening in the church and how the church explodes. Well, this is a map on the right of Paul's journey. This is kind of the record of where he went. And so here, he is uh, in the city. You can see the whole route, and I'm just going to pick up right here in Troas. Troas is a uh, city on the coast, and he says, from Troas we put out to sea, and we sailed straight for Samothrace. Change this a little bit. So they're going to sail past Samothrace, this island right here, and they're going to come to Neapolis. Neapolis is a port city in Greece. So he's now moving from Turkey over here, and he's moving into Greece. From there, we traveled to Philippi. Philippi is a Roman colony and the leading city of that district of Macedonia, and we stayed there several days. Philippi was indeed the Roman center of that province of Macedonia, uh, what's now basically Macedonia. But anyway, it's, it's near uh, the, the uh, Grecian peninsula. He said, on the Sabbath, now that's Saturday. So on Saturday, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. Now, I'll stop there for a second and tell you what he's doing here. When Paul went into a city, any city, he, if, he would look for a synagogue, and he always went to the synagogue first. So on Saturday, he'd go to the synagogue, he'd sit down, they'd say, hi, you're from out of town? Yeah, fill out this newcomer visitor form. Yeah, and so he would, you know, he'd fill out the visitor form, and they would go through, you know, the service, and they typically would ask him to speak, especially someone educated. So Paul would get up, and he'd start to speak. 
just not exactly what they thought. So he would take the reading from the Old Testament and he'd read it and he'd say, and then you typically give a little short sermon afterwards. I mean, our form of worship really does come from the Jewish synagogue form of worship. So he'd read the scripture, then you give a little talk. And so he would say, you know, this scripture is really interesting, and let me tell you how it connects to Jesus Christ. And so he would literally preach the gospel to the Jews in the synagogue. Okay, let me stop because we have a question in case uh, I'm getting ahead of us. But I want to come back to this. The re I'll tell you why he went out to the river in just a second. Question. Yes, this is a question from the very beginning. What does it mean when Jesus says to the angel of in each passage? What angel? Yes, we talked about this a little bit, but let me repeat it because it's a great, that's a great question. To the, now, remember, the word angel is in Greek, angel, but in Greek, it doesn't mean, you know, got wings and a harp, you know, and, and sitting on a cloud in heaven, which that's not true in any case. But you think of an angel as a spiritual being, and that's true. But that word literally meant messenger. It's all over secular Greek writing. You'll see, see uh, the king sent an angel. Well, he didn't send a spiritual being. He sent a messenger. So to the messenger or the angel, or a lot of scholars think it means the representative. So you have really, well, really only two good choices. One, that these churches had a guardian angel who was going to over, overlook them and watch over them. I'm not a big fan of this interpretation because you got too many popular movies that give you guardian angels that just sort of take care of you and make things work out for you. That's not even a slightly biblical idea, okay, that you've got a guardian angel because if that's true, you need to fire my guardian angel because I've been in so many traffic tie-ups this week, this guy's got to be sleeping on the job or something. But really probably more likely is each of these churches, particularly by 95 A.D., had a pastor or a leader, because remember, they're meeting in house churches. They don't have a building because they're being persecuted. They certainly can't all come together, but they would have a leader who would write devotionals. I mean, seriously, and send them around, or he would go from little house church to house church every Sunday and talk to them and encourage them and keep the Christian community together. And so shortly after this, you start seeing writing. I mean, really shortly after this. I've shown you some of the writings of the church fathers, Remember we talked about people, we didn't talk about Papias, but Papias is a church father. We talked about uh, Ignatius, we talked about Polycarp. They are bishops of the churches. And all that means is they have taken on the responsibility to just sort of shepherd those people. A lot of people think that's what it is, is send this to the leader, the representative, my messenger to these people, my pastor, if you will. I think that's probably more likely what's happening but basically what he's saying is send this to that church. But that's a good question. So why, when he goes to Philippi, does he go outside to the river? Well, Philippi is a very Roman town in Greece, and there's not a Jewish synagogue there at this time. And so when there's, by the way, to have a Jewish synagogue, you needed 10 Jewish men, and that was called a minion. A minion. So when you have 10 Jewish men, you can do a communal prayer. You can, for example, I don't know if you've ever seen this, but if you're in a gathering of Jewish Orthodox Jewish people, uh, really observant Jewish people, like when we're on aircraft going uh, from Israel or to Israel, there'll be usually sometime during the flight, it'll be the time for prayer, and there'll be some guy coming around looking at the people that are Jewish. And asking them and taking account. Can we find 10 men? If so, they'll go back to the back of the plane and they'll pray together. They can pray individually, but if you have 10 men, you have a community, if you will. So you could have a synagogue if you had 10 Jewish men. So apparently in Philippi, and it's not unreasonable because it is a Roman and a Greek city, there's not a synagogue. So when there's not a synagogue, the Jews that were there, and obviously there aren't 10 Jewish men, or at least not 10 devout Jewish men, they would tend to go outside, and if they could, they would be by water, and they would just pray. And he goes and he finds some women out on the Sabbath, out on Saturday, by the river. So on the Sabbath, we went outside the city, because there's no synagogue, where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. And so one of those listening was a woman named Lydia. 
She was a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, and she was a worshiper of God. What that means, by the way, that is a kind of a code phrase in the New Testament. It meant, by the way, her, her name is Greek. It's not a Hebrew name. So she's probably a convert to Judaism in some way or another. She's not born Jewish, but she does believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and she worships, uh, prays to this God. She is from Thyatira, our city over here, and she's on a business trip. She's on a business trip to Philippi to sell purple cloth. Purple dye was very hard to make, and Thyatira was the center for making purple dye. They knew the secret, and the guilds there, remember, they're like thick unions, you know, only more so on steroids. So the guilds there closely guarded the secret of the secret formula for making the purple dye, and they had the best purple cloth. When you washed it, it didn't fade, you know, in the washing machine, it was really good purple cloth. Well, she's on a business trip up here selling purple cloth. The inscriptions back here in Thyatira, by the way, Thyatira had a lot of trade guilds. The inscriptions on the public buildings attest to the fact that there were a lot of guilds there. So, you do know something about Thyatira, and you do meet a lady there. And it says, the Lord had opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. This is on his uh, missionary trip. The, and uh, when she and the members of her household were baptized. So, he literally preaches to them, and they become Christians. They baptize them right there. And she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. And so, while he was in Philippi, he probably stayed with Lydia, a brand new Christian. Just kind of a cool story to, that connects some of these places. Okay, so let's go back uh, to the book of Revelation. And right now, I just want to show you some pictures of Thyatira. So this is a temple in, and again, these are all ruins. Thyatira is an interesting city. It's about 40 miles south of Pergamum, or the last city that we were at. So it's more than a day's walk, but you could see how many cities were there. You could find a place to stay overnight. And so here you'll see the ruins of a temple in Thyatira. Thyat modern Thyatira is in the middle of a uh, modern city. There's only one of these sites that's really outside of a city that's kind of its own, own place, and that's Ephesus. Ephesus is right beside a modern city called Izmir. But Ephesus itself, the ruins don't have buildings around it. But these are some of the ruins in the foreground. That uh, mound and that wall come from ancient, ancient times, but you can see it's literally in the middle of that city. This is, this is an interesting place. You see the city streets, and you see what look like entrances here. And these are either storage areas or shops, something like that in the ancient city. The, obviously, the earthquakes over time, a lot of earthquakes in this, this area. It was like a massive earthquake here in 749 AD. I mean, it just leveled a lot of the cities. So you don't see the roofs, but you see a lot of the, the structure. Here's a, an ancient city street. You see the stones that are there, and you can see that it used to be lined with pillars, and in those pillars, there would have been altars, temples to the gods. Thyatira had a lot of different gods. Each one of the uh, guilds would typically have its own patron god or goddess the, of the guild, but you can see that it's really well-preserved roads. This is interesting. Laura, you're going to remember this when we were there. This really hit me, this place. Okay, so you see the steps on the left? That's not original. Okay, that is like there's a little church or something right there just off to the left of this picture, and they've built this little amphitheater. But I wanted you to see the river. This is that river outside. And I, you know, this is the traditional site where Paul and Lydia met. And you know what that means historically? Nothing. It means absolutely nothing. It means they built a church there and said, come on, tourists, this is where Paul met Lydia. But it was somewhere right around there. And it was really cool to be there where that happened, that the Jews or the God-fearing people would go out to the river to pray because they didn't have a synagogue. And so somewhere along this little river is indeed where that happened in Thyatira. Well, let's go back to the text because I want to just point out a couple of things here. First is you get a little bit of commendation. 
He says, I know your deeds, your works, in other words, what you're doing. He says, and look at this, your love, your faith, your service, your perseverance. Man, that's great. I mean, Jesus came to us and said, I know what you guys are doing, and I know your faith and your love and your service and your perseverance. That's a really good report. I mean, that's what every church would want to hear. But then he goes on and he says, but you have a cancer. There is a cancer in this church, and if you don't deal with it, it's going to destroy your love and faith and service and perseverance. He says, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself, pardon me, a prophetess, and her teaching she misleads my servants. Well, I want to pause there for a second because this is, now, who is Jezebel? Is Jezebel an actual person in that church? Probably not named Jezebel. Is it a woman in that church? Maybe, but not necessarily. What we're, what's happening here is Jesus is using an Old Testament reference to address a specific situation. There's obviously some teacher there that is teaching something that's not true, and it's a cancer on the church, and it's going to spread. So when he said that, anybody there who grew up Jewish, and a lot of them that didn't, Jezebel, I know who she is. Well, let's flash back a little and let's refresh our memory of who was Jezebel. So Jezebel, you can read about her in 1 Kings 16 through about 1 Kings 22. So now we've gone back to the Old Testament, the first book of the Kings. We have gone back to 874 B.C. So this is a story from Israel's past. And he's going to use that story to say, you know exactly what I'm talking about here. Well, let's, let's see. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, that's 874 B.C., Ahab became king of Israel. So he's a Jew, becomes the king of Israel. He reigned in Samaria. That was the capital city at that time of the northern kingdom for 22 years. He did, and this is not what you want on your tombstone, he did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, who was a bad guy, but he also married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians. Sidon and Tyre were in modern-day Lebanon. So think Israel and modern-day Lebanon. Lebanon, or at least this city, it's kind of like a city-state. And so Ethbaal is the king. I want you to notice Ethbaal's name is very interesting. It contains the name of his god. So Ethbaal uh, has the name of Baal. It's called a theophoric element. It's like having the name of your God in your name. Anytime you hear a Jewish name with El, like Daniel, Michael, or, or Yah, Jeremiah, those are the names of God. Those are Hebrew, parts of Hebrew words that mean God. And so it was really normal. So Ethbaal worships Baal. He's an idol. He's a pagan god. Jezebel also has the name Baal. Baal in her name. You just don't recognize it by the time it gets to English. So she's a good Baal-worshipping girl. She went to a private Baal school. You know, I mean, she's a, you know, went to the temple all the time of Baal. So what does she do? She marries him. And so he began to serve Baal and worship him. So there's the king of Israel worshiping Baal. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in his capital city. He made an Asherah pole. Asherah is Baal's girlfriend, basically. And did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than did all the kings of Israel before him. So Jezebel marries Ahab, gets him to start worshiping Baal. And then you may remember this story, but I'll tell it really quickly. Basically, she begins to kill the prophets, think preachers, of God. And she begins to recruit priests of Baal from the homeland. And she pays them a monthly stipend. And she feeds them and says, get out there and get the Israelites to all start worshiping Baal. It should be easy because Baal believed in orgies during worship. Baal was a fertility god. And the president, the king, worships Baal. So why shouldn't we? And sure enough, bunch of Israel starts they still worship Yahweh, they still worship God, but 
They're kind of also worshiping Baal because it's just kind of the right thing to do if you're an Israelite. And so you may remember the rest of the story. In chapter 18, there's this prophet named Elijah. And God says, Elijah, you need to go talk to Ahab and tell him he's a really bad guy. And Elijah says, you've got to be kidding me. He's already looking for me to kill me. Jezebel wants to kill all of us. And God says, just go ahead and go anyway. So he confronts him. Remember, it doesn't rain for three years. And then when he comes back and Ahab's trying to find him and kill him, he has that big you know, throwdown with the prophets of Baal and fire comes down from heaven and then we you sometimes you stop the story there when you're in kids Sunday school but after fire comes down from heaven he kills all the prophets of Baal Jezebel goes you got to be kidding me I'm not sleeping until you're dead and Elijah man of God that he is takes off for the hills and so Jezebel's looking for him you know I mean hey he can stand 400 prophets of Baal but the wrath of a woman no he cannot stand against that so he takes off right Jezebel meets an untimely end, okay, in uh, 2 Kings, right along around chapter 9-ish, read in that area, she do, it does not end well for Jezebel. But if you think about that, you go, oh, Jezebel, she's the one that corrupted the Israelites. She basically taught them and told them to go commit a spiritual adultery. In other words, be unfaithful to God and go worship another god too. Right? It's like spiritual infidelity, but it's also sexual immorality because the pagan rites were also sexually immoral and idolatry. So she's known for someone who seduced or taught or dragged away the Israelites into faith, you know, lack of faith to God. And so when you get to this passage, we'll go back to our passage here, he said, you tolerate that woman Jezebel. She, that's not necessarily a person named Jezebel. Maybe it is. But the point is very well taken. They go, oh, yeah, that's Bob over there. Or, you know, that's Sandra that's been, you know, teaching us this, and we've seen this. And sure enough, we've got a lot of people who are being unfaithful to God because they're being taught that. That's a Jezebel figure doing the exact same thing Jezebel was doing in the past. Well, what was this Jezebel at this time? What is she teaching them? Remember we said that Christians were persecuted economically because when you went to the guild, one of the things they would do at the union hall is they would say, we're going to have a big banquet and we're going to celebrate. This year we did really well as a, as a guild and we're going to worship Artemis and we're going to have the big orgy we always do every year. Remember how much fun that was last year? Remember Joe had that, you know, uh, lampshade on his head? It was just hilarious. You know, so they're having a big... Uh, immoral things happening and it's kind of toward Artemis thank you Artemis for blessing the electricians guild and thank you Apollo for blessing you know the metal workers guild that kind of thing well Christians were like can't do it I mean first of all can't do the sexual immorality and can't do the spiritual immorality there just can't do it well that's bad news right because then it's like hmm you're really not one of the guys are you I don't think you're going to get any work. In fact, I'm not sure you can stay in the guild. And so Christians became poor. They just couldn't get work. So some of the teachers said, look, it's not that big a deal. You know that we all worship God. These are Christian teachers. These are not outside teachers. Said, look, seriously, guys, we all worship God. We know that an idol's no thing. And so we can go do this stuff. And in fact, the sexual immorality... This is what Satan's dark secrets probably means, is you know what, you can even go sin just to show that you have forgiveness of this. So, I mean, just teaching them and deceiving them that it's okay to go fit in with the world. Does that make sense? We've seen this over and over. But that's what this reference to Jezebel is. So when it says those who commit adultery with her, they're not talking about physic, you know, a physical adultery with this person they're saying, you're basically married to God, if you will. You're the bride of Christ. You are faithful to God. You go off and worship other gods. That's spiritual adultery. He says, and if you follow her and do that, you're in big trouble. In fact, even to the point where it says, uh, he says, if you do not repent of her ways, I will strike her children dead. Who are her children? Who are the children of this false teacher? all the Christians that are following this false teacher. It's like, do you not realize that all of them 
are under judgment for their spiritual infidelity. In other words, Jesus is really serious about leading Christians astray into sin. You've seen that in every single letter. And so as he talks to him, he says, you need to hold to the truth. Now, apparently, they do have some. To you who do not hold to her teaching, have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets. In other words, are not buying this doctrine. It's not what you were taught. He says, hold on what you have till I come. He who overcomes and does my will to the end, you will rule with me. You will be with me. So the inheritance, by the way, of this false teaching is death. The inheritance of those who do not and who hold fast to the end is to rule with Jesus Christ, to be with Jesus Christ. And so he sets up this really stark uh, difference between truth and error and following after error. And he, con he convicts all of them, not just the ones who are deceived and go away and go, no, we can be Christians and still go do all this stuff. He's talking to the whole church. He's talking to the angel of the church. The, in my view, that would be the leader, the spiritual leader, like the elders or the preacher or something like that. And he's saying, I hold this against you that you're tolerating this and letting some of my sheep, if you will, go astray. So that's what's happening here in this letter, and it, it kind of fits if you think about it. He's saying there's persecution, people are compromising, and you get Christians being unfaithful. They're not holding to the truth. They're not holding to their first love, which is Jesus. And he says, I really have this against you. He said, if you let that go on, a lot of people are going to be destroyed by following that false teaching. So that's what he has to say to the church and Thyatira. Well, it's a timely message, isn't it? And by the way, it's been a timely message throughout the church's history. Throughout the church's history, from 95 AD until 2019, at every stage and in every locale, as Christianity encounters cultures and ideologies and belief systems, no matter what they may be, no matter whether they're pagan or philosophy, it's always tried to pull the church into some kind of what's called a syncretism. Syncretism is when you just merge two different ideas so that everybody kind of gets along. It's like, yeah, I'll worship my God, and, but you know what? I'll kind of worship your God too. And you want to worship mine, and we're just kind of all blended all together. And you see this mixing of Christianity. Same thing happens in our culture. It's nothing new. Our culture's ideology really wants to go grab Christians and say, look, you guys are a problem, but you know, if you would just come to the guild uh, meetings, and if you would just eat the meat sacrificed to idols, and if you would just commit the sexual immorality, and if you just bow down to Apollo here, I think we can work this all out. Our culture's always saying that to the church. So when I read this, I hear Jesus' words speaking to me, saying, Terry, don't hold to that teaching. Be faithful and do my will, and when you overcome, you will be with me. I think this is as timely as it was when it was written in 95 AD. Question? Mm -hmm. When he says that uh, he will strike her children dead, does he mean physically dead or just damnation? Yeah, does he mean physically dead or damnation? There's no particular evidence in the New Testament era or around this time that God is... Uh, well, remember Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts? Some of you will say, no, I don't, and that's okay. Nobody's born knowing this, but some of you do. And that's a case where God really literally struck somebody dead. And there's no evidence that that's happening here. I tend to take this uh, because it's consistent with the way you understand the rest of it as very symbolic. In other words, you're going to die forever because you are unfaithful. You are not following Christ. Now, I'm, you're doing an Ahab here. You're doing a Jezebel. It's like, yeah, I'll follow you, but really I'm also following him. Oh, and I'm also doing this stuff, and I hope you're okay with that. God won't accept us on those terms. That's not what Jesus taught. So I think it's talking about spiritual death. I think it's talking about these people are going to, they're in danger of God's judgment on them for not being faithful. That's a great question. Okay? Okay. Tough, tough times in Thyatira. Thyatira is like Mother Teresa compared to Sardis. So let me introduce you to Sardis. Sardis is, they are really struggling here, right? So Thyatira, 
right there. Now we're going to go down about 35 miles, just giving you an idea of about what the scale, about 35 miles to, uh, to Sardis. And here's what he says to Sardis. Really short, and the reason it's short is he's got nothing good to say. To the angel of the church in Sardis, write this. These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. This is, this is scary. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen, by the way, this is a low blow right there. I'll tell you about that in a second. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Obey it and repent. He's talking about the gospel. He's talking about the, the news about Jesus Christ. You know, remember teaching them to obey everything I commanded you? He said, remember it, repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. Tell you what that means in a minute. They will walk with me dressed in white for they are worthy. He who overcomes, here you see that again, perseveres, endures, overcomes, will be dressed in white. I will never blot out his name from the book of life. I know we need to talk about that. But will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So I want to show you uh, a few pictures of Sardis. But before we do that, okay, so Sardis is a really interesting little town. It goes way, way back in history. But uh, it was conquered by Rome in 189 B.C., and it was destroyed by an earthquake in 17 AD. And so Tiberius was the Roman emperor in 17 AD. And he said, you don't have to pay taxes for five years because your city just got leveled. And so sure enough, they don't pay taxes for five years. They take all the taxes and they rebuilt their city. Magnificent. So this is a rich city. I mean, very, a lot of money in this town. And so they rebuilt it. They were very proud. And they were just kind of really cool looking good out there, right? But back, back in history, and this is something they never forget. There was a king named King Croesus. King Croesus is probably the model for the Midas touch. Remember King Midas? Everything touched turned to gold. It's really not... That story is not about uh, a mythical, he touches it and it turns to gold. It's sort of like he was the Warren Buffett of ancient times. It's like every stock trade he did worked out well. So King Croesus is filthy rich. So this is in the Persian era. So I want you to think about, oh, roughly, let's call it 500 B.C. Okay, so we're in the A.D. now. But 500 B.C., something they still never lived down. So King Croesus in Sardis, tons of money. Sardis is set up on a hill and it's got like a cliff on one side. I mean, this thing is really defensible. It's almost impregnable. So the Persians come, they surround the place, they go, man, this is going to be tough. And Croesus is up there laughing at them like, hey, when you get tired, let me know. I'll send you out some a soda. But anyway, so he says, there's no way you guys are going to get us. They don't even post a guard. I mean, they're just all asleep. Well, apparently, there's some little mountain climber in the Persian uh, camp, and he climbs literally, free climbs up this cliff, gets up there, climbs up the wall. There's nobody there. They're all asleep because they're impregnable. Gets down, opens the gate. Everybody comes in, kills them all, takes all the money. So he says to them, wake up. And he's kind of referring like, you know, you guys have a reputation for being lazy, and sleepy. I mean, it's just interesting little connections that get made here by Jesus. And so he says, wake up, obey what I'm telling you, and repent. Well, let me show you some pics here. This is the temple to Artemis. They worshiped a lot of gods and goddesses, but this is a temple to Artemis. Now, if Ephesus had the huge temple for Artemis, and she was their patron goddess, not the patron goddess of Sardis. Apollo is the patron goddess of, or god of Sardis, but there's the remains of a Greek temple this is a Jewish synagogue. Uh, the remains of a Jewish synagogue in that town, they obviously had a Jewish contingent in that town. By the way, and this is really interesting, did you notice in all the other letters it talks about the synagogue of Satan and how the Jews were persecuting the Christians? 
And I told you about Polycarp. When they were going to burn him to death, the Jews went and got wood and said, here, we'll help you. I mean, because the Jews were persecuting the Christians now, and they were turning them in. Remember we talked about that? They would turn them into the Roman authorities, say, hey, by the way, my neighbor's a Christian. Why don't you come haul him away? And if you don't mind, I'm going to take his yard tools. Okay? So, I mean, this is what's happening. This is persecution of the Christians, right? Well, but here there's a synagogue, but you don't see anything in this letter that says, I know you're being persecuted by the Jews. And I'll tell you what most scholars think, and I kind of agree, that the Christians in Sardis were not being persecuted because the gospel they were preaching was too weak to even offend anybody. I mean, remember what he says to them? He says, you have a reputation for being alive. In other words, everybody goes, oh, that church in Sardis, have you seen their stained glass windows? Oh my goodness. And their parking lot, magnificent. They have a bookstore inside. They have a Starbucks in there. That church is awesome. You know, and so he's got a reputation for being alive. He says, but you're dead. You're spiritually dead. And apparently they're not even being persecuted. I mean, their gospel's so weak that it doesn't even offend the people around them. But this is a Jewish synagogue. By the way, the, the, you can see in this, uh, change this here, but these uh, mosaics are just gorgeous there, by the way. So it's very rich synagogue too. I mean, very, very nice synagogue there. This is interesting because this is a, the remains of a wall. I mean, this is 2,000 years old. So it's, I know it looks bad. Well, it kind of looks like my shed really. But anyway, it looks pretty bad. But then these are shops. And let me give you a better picture. You're going to remember this too, Laura, uh, walking down this street right here. These up against this, there's a, you know, a, a city wall there. Those are all shops. I mean, that's the Mont Blanc store right there. And then you can tell this was a liquor store because of all the corks in there. But bottom line is these are all shops. I mean, this is a really well-to-do city. It's a very rich city city. So they were rich, but God said, you're dead as far as I'm concerned. These, this is a magnificent facade because most of the building has been destroyed, but these are the Roman baths in Sardis. I mean, it's a magnificent facade that's still there. And here's another picture of it, a little bit different picture. But so there, it's a really beautiful, or would have been, obviously, it still is. The ruins are great, but it would have been a magnificent, rich, city of the time with a really completely ineffective church in it. So let's, uh, let's dive into this just a little bit because I want to cover a couple of things. So basically he says, you know, your works are not complete. Uh, you have a reputation to being alive, but you're spiritually dead and you need to wake up. You need to fan the flames of this and you need to remember, recall what you received and heard, the message of Jesus Christ. Repent, turn back to it, and obey it. If you don't, I'll come like a thief, kind of like those Persians did. You have no idea when they're going to attack. He says, that's the way it will be. I will return, and you will be judged because of your weak, weak faith. This idea you have some people who have not soiled their clothes. In the book of Revelation, and by the way, in a lot of other places, this idea of dirty clothes, you'll even see this in the Old Testament, uh, in, in certain visions, you'll see the idea of being dressed in rags or having really filthy clothes. That is a symbol of your spiritual condition. In other words, your righteousness, your faithfulness to God, your deeds, if you will. And so when he says to them that you, you have these filthy clothes, they go, no, I don't. I've got a Brooks Brothers suit, custom made, custom tailored. He goes, I know, but you look at this with God's eyes, and you look filthy. You know, you look filthy. Why? Because your spirit is just corrupted. You're idolatrous. You're sexually immoral. So this is a symbol of what's inside them. So what he says is, some of you have not soiled your clothes. By the way, as long as we're here, might as well talk about this. In the book of James, which is James writing a letter a little bit before this time to a bunch of Jewish believers. In James 1, uh, it's like verse 27, right at the end of chapter 1, he says this, Pure and undefiled religion is this, to take care of widows and orphans in their distress, and here's the part, and to keep yourself unspotted or unstained 
by the world. It's that same imagery. In other words, as you make compromises with the world, as we adopt the gods and the idols of our culture, it's as though we're being stained. It's like our clothes are getting really dirty. That's that same metaphor, if you will, that God's using here. He says, those who haven't compromised with that, who have held to the truth of the message, will walk with me dressed in white. Every time you see white clothes, I mean, you're going to see Jesus coming in white. He's going to come on a white horse. He's going to have angels behind him dressed in white. What that means is they are in a right relationship with God. They are faithful to God. They are obedient to God. And so what he's saying is you have white clothes. And they go, really? He goes, yes. In God's eyes, you are spiritually pure. You are set aside for God. So that's what he's talking about here. And so he said, he who overcomes will be dressed in white, meaning you will be approved. God says, you are obedient and you are doing what I have asked you to do. He who overcomes. So one other thing we probably should talk about, I mean, unless you guys just don't care, in which case I'm fine to skip it, but blotting your name out of the book of life. Anybody interested in that? Yeah, okay, so let's talk about what is the book of life. So the book of life, is it a literal book? I don't know if it's a literal book or not, but it is a record, if you will, of all that we have done. So when you get to chapter 20 of the book of Revelation, you're going to see the great white throne judgment. And depending on your view of Revelation, this is the judgment or it's one of the judgments. doesn't really matter for my point tonight. And that is, he said, and the books were open. And the dead were all raised up from, you know, if you've been drowned, you're here. If you, you know, the dead are all raised and everyone was judged by what they had done. And so you get this idea of the book of life. And if your name is not written in the book of life, you are condemned. It's a judgment idea. If you're in the book of life, then you're, you belong to Jesus Christ. If you're not in the book of life, you're under God's wrath because you do not belong to Jesus Christ. So the question is, a couple of interesting questions here. So what he says, and you need to be careful, he says, if you overcome, persevere, endure, stay true to the faith, I will not blot out his name from the book of life. Well, this is very interesting because, first of all, you get the idea from a lot of passages that, that God knew who you were and God wrote your name in the book of life before the foundation of the world. So there's some passages in the New Testament that talk about that. And Jesus is like, yeah. And he says, but if you're faithful, I won't blot your name out of the book of life. So what is he talking about? Uh, Peter Lightheart has a really good take on this. So I'll just kind of give you an idea. So some people would say, once you're in the book of life, you're always in the book of life. The problem is this verse kind of indicates, he says, I won't blot your name out, but kind of indicates that you could, right? I mean, so it's possible. And I'll tell you something else that kind of goes along with that. Do you remember, Matt, you'll remember this passage probably, but it's in Matthew chapter 7, it's in the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus says, you know, in the end times, basically at the time of judgment, many people, not everybody that comes to me and says, Lord, Lord, meaning master, like I belong to you. I'm one of your servants. He said, uh, have, look at what we did. We did all this great stuff in your name, right? We cast out demons in your name. We did good works in your name. And Jesus says, and I will say to them, I don't know who you are. Well, that's a really scary passage, isn't it? Meaning that just because I'm doing things that I think are for Jesus' names or I'm out there doing good deeds, that doesn't necessarily mean, Jesus says, but only him who does the will of my Father. And so it may be that I'm not doing God's will. I may be doing good deeds and I can say I'm a Christian, I can say I'm doing it for God. And so you get this idea of then what is the book of life and what does it take to stay in the book of life? And Lightheart's view is this, just putting all this together. He believes in the idea of historical election, meaning God for, whether you think God foreordained or God foreknew, let's just skip that argument. But bottom line, God knew ahead of time, you know, who is going to believe. Jesus says, but if you do not persevere, don't make me blot your name out of the book of life. That's not what I want. But he who overcomes, your name will not be blotted out of the book of life. So Lightheart says, even though there's historical election, he said the book of life is a record of perseverance. I like that phrase because Jesus uses perseverance language a lot 
in the Bible. He who perseveres to the end will be saved. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. And you get the idea of persevering. All these letters are talking to Christians who are at least everywhere but Sardis. They're being persecuted. They're being marginalized. I mean, things, unpleasant things are happening to them. He says, he who overcomes will rule with me. He who overcomes will be dressed in white. In other words, he who stays faithful through these things, the idea of perseverance, the idea of staying with Christ, being faithful to the end, is a really key idea in the New Testament. And so I like this idea that the book of life is basically a record of perseverance, if you want to think about it that way. It's basically those who have been faithful to the end. Let me stop there and take a question in case that's not very clear or very useful to you. Do we know if any of these seven cities changed after they received the messages? That's a good question. Do we know how these cities reacted after the messages? Only indirectly. So this is the end of the inspired message of God. We have historical records from the early church fathers. These are Christians. They were usually preachers or think of them as elders or bishops were their title because that's a biblical uh, title. But anyway, they were kind of some of the spiritual leaders kind of shepherding the people and they would write letters. And I gave you, I think I read you a letter of uh, Ignatius. He's from about 110 AD, so not long after this. So he's writing letters. Polycarp wrote tons of letters. Polycarp's an interesting guy. So he's in Smyrna. We talked about this when we were in Smyrna. Polycarp's an old guy. So they catch him and they take him, they're going to take him to the Roman governor and they're going to kill him unless he wants, he'll worship Caesar. So first, this is great. This is written down, by the way. You can read this. It's called uh, The Martyrdom of Polycarp. Just Google it. It's a cool ancient document written about 160 AD. I mean, it's a long, long time. But it says, when they caught him, he said, can I pray first? He said he prayed for everybody he had ever met. You know, I mean, took hours. So then they take him from city to city, and they're stopping to spend the night. There's a church there. So he's preaching everywhere he goes, and he writes them a letter. Polycarp wrote letter after letter on the trip, you know, saying, hey, guess what? They're going to take me and kill me. I get to be a martyr. I get to die, you know, for Jesus Christ. He's bragging about this, like, hey, thank God for this, you know, and he's sending these letters everywhere. So long story, I got off track. Answer is, do we know what happened to the churches? When you read the writings of those early church fathers, you can see kind of how things are going. And yes, some of the churches do seem to have turned around, the ones that we, we know about, and others did not. We don't know about every one of these, but that's a great question. It does appear that sometimes these Christians took, took heart and repented, and in other places not. At the end of the letter to the church at Thyatira, he says, I will give you the morning star. Is that the same thing as we're talking about here with the Book of Life? Well, not so much as the Book of Life. The Morning Star is, that's a really interesting, complicated subject. But bottom line, giving you the Morning Star means you will, the Morning Star is Venus, and it's like the first star that you see, you know, and, and uh, so basically it held an idea of renewal, in other words, it was the idea of the first star that's out. It's an idea of renewal. It's a fresh start, if you will. It kind of more carries the idea of, I'll give you the morning star, which means you'll live with me forever. That's not a great explanation, but it, it tends to mean more something, the idea of you are going to be with me. You're going to overcome. He's with you. We'll get white clothes. You will rule with me. You will, I will give you the morning star. It's all the idea of you will live forever with me in heaven. Good question. Um, when we were talking about Paul um, at the river when he meets Lydia, mm -hmm. is it significant that Paul spent time with the women? Is it similar to Jesus speaking with the women at the well? Good question. So the question is, when Paul goes out to the river and he sees these women, it was countercultural thing to do for a Jew. So remember the story of Jesus and the Samaritan woman, and he sees her at the well and he speaks to her and she goes, why are you a Jewish man speaking to me, a Samaritan? I mean, you guys don't even get near us, let alone talk to us. Plus, you're a man. It's, this is not done, right? So Jesus is kind of breaking some cultural boundaries. When Paul goes and speaks to them, it's sort of like this. He might as well talk to these women because he's already been around Gentiles. He's hopeless. 
I mean, the guy's already broken some major taboos. But it is, so in other words, at that point, that's trivial compared to all the other rules he's broken. According to the Jews, you're not supposed to be in a Gentile city. You're not supposed to preach to the Gentiles. He's like, are you kidding me? This is what God wants. He wants everybody to come to him. So yes, it's a little countercultural. But what's really interesting is, and this is still true today, think about the church in Philippi got started by a group of women. They're the first converts. And then there becomes a church in Philippi. And sometimes I think, leaving aside the idea of egalitarianism and complementarianism and the role of women in the church, let's set it aside for just a moment. The bottom line is it's really hard to argue that the gospel is for everyone. And I don't know if these women were preaching in the pulpit or not. I'm just set that aside. I don't want us to overlook the fact that the faith of these women then, just like the faith of women now, is hugely powerful. In fact, our statistics would show that on Mother's Day, church attendance goes up. Why? Everybody says, Mom, what do you want to do? She says, I want the whole family to go to church. Father's Day, you know what's coming. <laughs> attendance goes down. Why? Dad, what do you want to do? I'm going to go play golf. <laughs> okay, so I do think it's significant in the fact that that church was started by these women who came to Christ and shared their faith. It's just a powerful story, I think. Can you talk a little bit about the modern-day equivalence for us of the idea of Jezebel and false teaching? Yes, uh, the modern-day equivalent for us of Jezebel and false teaching without naming names. Okay, so you thought, you, I know what you thought. We're going to get this on tape. Yeah, no. But in all seriousness, all joking aside, there anything that takes the heart of the gospel and dilutes it or compromises it. I mean, go all the way back to the garden. Remember what the remember what Satan said to Adam and Eve? Did God really say this? And he said, he said you can't eat this and she got he goes, that's a lie. You really can eat this. And you have teachers today who will blatantly contradict the clear teaching of Scripture. I'm not talking about disputable issues of exactly when are the end times going to happen and is there a thousand-year reign or not. That's not affecting any of our salvation, is it? This is basically leading people into spiritual adultery, spiritual unfaithfulness, uh, and literally into immorality in many cases. So this would be people who are teaching Christians, you know what, yes, you're a Christian, but it's okay to do this. It's okay to love money. It's okay to participate in the gods of the culture. They don't usually call them that, but that's what you see. Things like a prosperity kind of gospel is not a biblical idea. And when I say that, what I mean is that God wants you to be wealthy and healthy and uber successful in the physical world. And if you just believe hard enough, he will bring you wealth and fame and success and happiness and good health and all that kind of thing. There's nothing in the teaching of Jesus that matches up with that. It's a great message because most Christians would like to go, yeah, I want to be faithful to Christ, but I definitely want a new car. And I definitely want a lot of money. And I definitely want to be comfortable. Of course we do. Our flesh always wants comfort. It always wants those things. I'm not telling you that you can't, that won't happen to Christians, but that idea of trading my faith in God for material success goes so against the scripture. And I'm not trying to pick on that one teaching, but that is, that's really leading people to go chasing after, and this is, this is easy to do, go chasing after the gods of our culture and be a Christian. And that's a lot like what Jezebel's doing. So maybe that's one example, and that's one of the reasons that we do speak sometimes about the prosperity gospel, because it is a big distortion of what Jesus taught. This idea that if I'm faithful and I really trust you, you are gonna make me rich, in a nutshell. So maybe that, that's an example. If you look, you'll see other things. How do you know? <laughs> Read your New Testament. Remember what he says here? He says, remember what you received and heard. That's equivalent to saying to us today, read the New Testament that I gave you. Listen to the words of Jesus. Listen to the words of my messengers and know what's true and then hold to that. Well, here's my last thing to you. 
I want to talk about this idea of perseverance for a minute. I'm going to give you an opinion. Okay, this isn't coming from the text. This is my opinion on how to think about it. He who perseveres to the end will be saved. He who overcomes. In other words, Jesus said, you will have trouble in this life, but I have overcome, and I want you to overcome. He said, I will be with you. In 1 John, he says, he who is in you, my Holy Spirit, is more powerful than the devil in this world. That doesn't mean you won't have trouble, but God is able to carry us through. In John, he talks about, I'm just scattering all over, but you just read the New Testament, you'll see this all over the place, that no one can snatch you out of my hand. In other words, Satan's not powerful enough. He can't beat me up and take you away. You can follow me. But this idea of perseverance throughout our life is a daunting task, isn't it? That doesn't mean we don't ever sin. We sin if we're faithful to confess our sins. He's faithful to forgive us, always turning back towards God. But the idea of following God faithfully through the rest of my life is kind of a daunting task. Like, I don't know what's coming. Will I succeed? Will I be faithful? Will I not? Number one, he is able to complete, as Paul said, the work in you that he has started. You're not in this alone. The Holy Spirit is with you. Listen to the Spirit. Immerse yourself in the scriptures. Nothing can overcome you. And my second piece of advice is this. You just be faithful one day at a time. You know, you wake up in the morning, you say, I'm going to be faithful to God today. In other words, I'm going to try to become as more and more like Jesus Christ today. And then the next day, you wake up and you say, today, I will be more like Christ. Don't worry about persevering. Just take it one day at a time and be faithful one day at a time. And if you do that seven days in a row, we'll be back here next week and we'll talk about Philadelphia and Laodicea. I'll see you guys next time.